you have a Bible with you this morning, open up to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this incredible Gospel, and we're in chapter 10, and this morning we're going to try to do a part two of what I began last week of a sermon entitled, His Sheep. His sheep. So last week, part one. This week, part two. Look at John chapter 10, and I'll go ahead and just read the whole text for us to kind of frame it out uh, for us this morning. John chapter 10, starting in verse 19, all the way down to verse 30. Uh, There was a, again, a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Father, we do bow our heads before you this morning, praying for insight and the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit to allow us to see this text in all of its power and all of its authority, and it would take root in our lives, and it would bring about change in our perspective, and that we would be blessed today to understand yet again what it means to be one of your sheep. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but people in our culture, in our day and time, care a whole lot about their pets. You notice how much people love their pets? There's quite a number of pet preferences in the United States, and a list from the most common pet to the least common pet looks like this. First you have dogs, then cats, birds, horses, fish, rabbits, turtles, chickens, hamsters, guinea pigs, Lizards, snakes, livestock, other rodents, ferrets, other reptiles, gerbils, and then all others. All right, hopefully if I didn't mention your pet, you didn't make it in the most popular pets in America. Did you know Americans spend over $60 billion every year just on their pets? Pet owners spend over $12,000 on a pet throughout their lifetime. 37.2 American households own a dog, and the average dog owner spends about $100 a month caring for their dog. People also spend big bucks on doggy care, canine psychologists, gourmet treats, grooming, cute outfits, fancy collars, and luxurious bedding. In fact, if you don't have a place for your dog to stay next time you're out of town, one of the Beverly Hills dog hotels only charges 140 bucks a night for your dog to stay there. And you can also book your dog's birthday party, spa treatment, and graduations for special milestones in your dog's life. 
If you haven't seen Beverly Hills Chihuahua 1, 2, and 3, this might be a good week for you to look at one of those movies and you'll get a better idea of what I'm talking about. But in the Bible, people are not referred to as dogs, but as sheep. In fact, dogs take on a very derogatory tone in the scriptures. They're not referred to as pets, but outcasts and animals that cause a great threat. Just listen to a couple of famous passages in the Bible. 1 Samuel 17, 43, David, uh, excuse me, Goliath said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to its own vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. The Lord Jesus, Matthew 7, verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw to your, your pearls before pigs. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And so while dogs get a bad rap in the scriptures, sheep are upheld with a much better view. If you'll remember from last week, we talked about if Jesus is the good shepherd, then that makes us his sheep. And let me tell you something, the Lord loves his sheep. The Lord doesn't just groom the outside of his sheep, but he transforms them from the inside out. You see, Beverly Hills can never get to the heart. And the Lord Jesus takes your heart of stone and turns it into a heart of flesh. Jesus does away with the old and he makes all things new. Jesus cares not just for your physical needs, but for your spiritual needs as well. Get this, Jesus doesn't pamper you, he perfects you. And that's what the Lord Jesus does to his sheep and he fulfills your every desire. Jesus shines light into your soul. And if you are in Christ this morning, you've been given every spiritual blessing as a sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are seated with him in the heavenlies. You are loved, you are treasured, you are cared for. And if you are in Christ today, you are one of his sheep. Now under the Mosaic Covenant in the Old Testament, a sheep was one of those few clean animals. And it is therefore suitable that sheep represent God's people who have been cleansed from their sin. Sheep are harmless, helpless, gentle, and entirely dependent on their shepherd. Yes, sheep are sometimes characterized as having a proneness to wonder, but true sheep always come back to the fold. The true sheep may stumble and they may get dirty, but they are washed by the blood of Jesus and they are shepherded by the chief shepherd of the soul. So let me ask you this morning, are you one of his sheep? The Lord Jesus knows each one of those that the Father has given to him with a special knowledge of ownership and affection and intimacy. And though the world does not know you, you are known by him. And if you are a Christian today, you can say, I am his. I belong to the good shepherd. My life is in his hands. He knows me by name. He cares for my every concern. He knows you inside and out. He provides for your every need. He feeds you. 
He heals you when you are broken. He binds up your wounds. He protects you from evil. He makes us lie down in green pastures, Psalm 23 says. He leads us besides still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for the Lord is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. My shepherd prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh, isn't it good to be one of his sheep? This morning, we're looking at John 10. 19 through 30, and we're looking at three headings to help us better understand the significance of being a sheep of Christ. Last week, we looked at the first two points. Today, we'll look at the last point. The first two are all about the confusion about Christ, where people heard his teaching, and the teaching and the truth of Jesus Christ always cuts like a knife. There's always a division between those who follow and those who run away, those who adhere to the teaching of our Lord and those who call him a blasphemer. And so last week, we looked at how there was a lot of confusion about Christ. And then secondly, last week, we looked at this question asked of Christ. In fact, if you look at verse 25 uh, or 24 rather so the Jews gathered around him and said to him how long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ tell us plainly and so we spent a little time last week saying how Jesus had already told them plainly he had revealed himself to the woman at the well at Samaria he had preached that he was the bread of life he had already preached that he was the light of the world he had already done so many signs that pointed to the unequivocal truth that he is the son of God that he is the Messiah that he is the Christ and yet these Jews blinded by their own unbelief were still asking this same question are you the Christ? Which ended last week with me giving you that illustration about imagine that you're driving down the road and you're going a little too fast. Remember that? And you get pulled over by the California Highway Patrol and they ask that question, do you know, sir, do you know how fast you were going? Now, I, I've just heard that question repeated by others who've gotten pulled over by the Highway Patrol, but sir, do you know how fast you were going? And you, you, know, you, you can take a stab at it, but let's just say you play it dumb and you say, I don't know, officer. And, and then you say to him, how am I supposed to know what the speed limit is? Now, how long is it going to take him to write you a ticket if you respond like that? Right? I mean, he could say, look, there are signposts with the speed limit every one or two miles. You know, what, what do you need to, to see? Uh, do you need them every 10 or 15 feet, you know, in order to see? And we talked last week about how there's signposts that point to the Lord Jesus throughout his creation. And there's signposts that point to the Lord Jesus throughout his word and throughout all of history. In every moment of your life, what does it take for you to see exactly who he is? I mean, either you're playing it dumb or you're driving blind, right? But if your eyes are open this morning, you're going to see that the Lord Jesus is exactly who he said he was. He is the Christ. And this leads us really to our third point this morning. This is what this sermon will be focused on is the assurance offered by Christ. He offers us great assurance of who he is and who we are in him. And so let's first talk about, if you're taking notes this morning, you can fill in this blank about the perseverance of the saints. Here in verse 27, again, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Let me give you three truths about this verse 27, the perseverance of the saints. The first is this, number one, sheep hear the voice of the Lord. 
So we're talking about how his saints persevere, verse 27, and his sheep hear his voice. Again, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Now notice, first of all, that Jesus says, my sheep. He does not say the apostles' sheep. He does not say the disciples' sheep. He does not say the elders' sheep. He does not say the church's sheep. He does not say the preacher's sheep. We're talking about Christ's sheep. Christ's sheep are owned by Christ. He bought you with a price and you are no longer your own. You are not an illegitimate son. Right? You are adopted into his family. You, you are no longer homeless. You, you are not an orphan. If you are in Christ, you are one of his sheep. You are not a widow today. If you're in Christ, you have a bridegroom who is alive and well and who's coming after you. You, you have a groom who's made an eternal covenant to be yours forever. I like how J.C. Ryle writes here. He says that Jesus calls them my sheep because they are his by God the Father's gift, his by redemption and purchase, his by calling and choosing, his by feeding, keeping, and preserving. They are peculiarly, sorry, his property, right? And that's, that's unique, right? We, we belong to him. He owns us. We are not our own, and we, therefore we can't just do what we want. We're not a, a, a vagabond sheep, right? You're not a renegade sheep. You belong to him. Jesus says again, you're one of my sheep, and aren't you glad to be a part of his sheep, and his sheep hear his voice? And so when Jesus here is talking about how my sheep hear my voice, I think there we could see a little bit of a, a, a systematic theology talking here about the effectual call of God. We talk about, you know, have you been called? Uh, that can be a confusing terminology. Let me try to simplify it for you. When we talk about you're called by God in the scripture, there's really two types of calling, okay? There are what theologians describe as the general call, and there is also the effectual call. The general call is a gospel call by a human voice for people to come to Christ. This would be the work of the evangelist. This would be the invitation for anyone to come to Christ. This would be the preacher pleading in his sermon, I call you this day to come to Christ. And not all will respond to this general call. And we, we call all to come, but not all come. So this general call, sometimes it's called the gospel call, goes out from a human voice to everyone under the sound of his voice, but not everyone will come to his voice. There are some who will reject the gospel. There are some who can't even hear you because the Lord has not yet opened their ears. They're blind. And the general call is not what Jesus is referring to in this verse. When he says, my sheep hear my voice, I believe that what Jesus is talking about is the effectual call. And the effectual call is an act of God. The effectual call is the voice of God speaking to his own. The effectual call is a particular call of God summoning to himself a people who will respond in faith. The effectual call is irresistible. The effectual call produces life in those who are spiritually dead. The effectual call is the working of the Holy Spirit regenerating a dead heart. The effectual call is always effective. The general call goes out to the whole world, even to those who will never accept it, but the effective call of God is God calling his elect to himself. The effectual call 
is what Paul is talking about in Romans 8, verse 30, when he writes, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so what we're learning here is that all those who've been predestined to eternal life will hear Christ's voice, and they will respond to the effective call of God. He will justify them in salvation, and he will glorify them in all eternity. Other verses describe more fully what this calling is. When God calls people in this wonderful way, he calls them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9, God calls them into the fellowship of his son, 1 Corinthians 1.9, he calls you into his kingdom and glory, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, people who've been called by God belong to Jesus Christ, Romans 1.7, they are called to be saints, Romans 1, uh, 6 and 7, and so they've been called into a freedom and into a, a hope that they've, they've never known. And if you're a recipient of the effective calling of God, then you are called to holiness. You are called to patient endurance in suffering. You are called unto eternal life. That's what it means to hear his voice. It means that you're born again. It means that you listen to Jesus and that you come to him and follow him for the calling of God has such been on your life that you no longer want to resist, but you come as you are, and he changes you, and he saves you. Now, secondly, we read in, in this verse here about how sheep are known by the Lord. Not only are they called out by him that my sheep hear my voice, but the sheep are known by the Lord. Look at the middle of verse 27, and I know them. If you are one of his sheep, do you know how long you have been known by the Lord? He says, if you come to him, he knows you. My question is, well, how long has he known you? I believe that you've been known by God before you were born. You were known by God before you were ever conceived. You were known by God from eternity past. You say, well, Adam, where does it say that in the scripture? Well, I think Jeremiah 1.5 is a good reference. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, and I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. And I believe that God knows every one of his sheep in this same way that God is pointing out how he knew Jeremiah. Your, your biological life may have began at conception, but God knew about you even before you were formed in the womb. But that, that's how long God has known you. He's known you from eternity past. You existed, if you will, in the mind of God. And so that's how long he's known you. We could ask the question, well, how intimately does he know you? And turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, I think one of the most beautiful psalms talking about the omniscience of God and the omnipresence of God and the omnipotence of God. And we see here in just the first six verses how well the Lord knows us. Look at verse one, Psalm 139, verse one. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. That word search there means that God has explored it. He's examined it closely. This kind of uh, reminds me of a scientist who carefully studies nature or a doctor who carefully studies the heart. He, he just knows all about it, and he knows all about you. He's a specialist. He knows everything there's to know about you. You're known by God. He has searched you, and he has known you. Look at verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. What, what does God know about you, according to verse 2? Well, he knows when you sit down 
and he knows when you rise up. This means he knows all of your daily activities. He, he not only knows all of your activities, but he knows all of your thoughts, whatever you're thinking right now. He knows it. That's the omniscience of God. Verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. God, God knows your path. He, he knows your future. He knows every step that you are going to take to get there. He knows every stop along the way. He is aware of all of your ways. Again, just another way of saying that he knows everything about you. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Did you know that God knows you so well that he knows what you're going to say before you say it? I mean, go ahead and say something. God knows it before you ever say it, before you ever think it, before you ever put it into action because that's how well he knows you. He knows everything about you, everything about your situation, everything about your whole life. In fact, look at verse 5. It says, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. It's like God is surrounding David like an army would surround a city. That idea of being hemmed in has that idea of a city that's under siege, that there's no way of escape. And we're saying in a good way that God smothers you by knowing every part of your life all the time. This verse says that God can lay his hand upon you at any time that you're never lost, you're never outside of his reach. He knows exactly where you are. God could reach out and touch you or your situation at any time. Now, what are we to think about a a God who knows us like that? Well, the only response in verse six is such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I I cannot attain it. In other words, I, I just can't comprehend this this incredible knowledge that the Lord has for us as he knows each one of us as his sheep it's too wonderful it it means his knowledge is incomprehensible his knowledge is beyond us his knowledge is so great that it goes well beyond what we're capable of understanding God knows how many stars are in the universe God knows how many grains of sand are in the seashore God knows how many hairs are upon your head it's amazing to think about his knowledge. In fact, even just thinking about that, that how he knows us, that ought to frighten us in one sense. You can't get away with anything. He knows it all, every thought, every deed. In one sense, there's a fear there, a healthy fear of God. And in the second sense, I think there ought to be something about that that encourages us. It frightens us and it encourages us that he knows us. And get this, he loves you anyway. If you're one of his sheep, even when you get dirty, even when you fall, even when you mess up, he knows all about it and he still calls you by name. He calls you into his presence. He leads you into the pasture where you can continue to feed and be well nourished. And so we're learning here again about us and the Lord Jesus. Back to our main text in in John 10, his sheep hear his voice. His sheep are known by him. And then notice how the end of verse 27 pretty much says his sheep follow him, right? The sheep follow the Lord. That's what they do. They hear his voice. They are known by him and they follow me. One of the characteristics of the sheep that we've been looking at is that real sheep follow the shepherd. They don't follow thieves or robbers. They do not know their voice. They do not follow false shepherds. They do not follow the world. They don't even follow their hearts because their hearts can lead them astray. A true sheep follows the voice of Jesus. 
Jesus called his disciples by saying, follow me. Remember, he walks by the wayside and he says to Matthew and he says to John and to Phil, follow me. Each one of the disciples are called out. And in that same way, Jesus is calling every one of his disciples to be followers. It's Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and what? Follow me. This is the calling of every true sheep. True sheep follow the Savior. True sheep follow the example of Jesus. True sheep follow in holy obedience to the commandments. True sheep follow Christ because they love Christ. It's not out of duty necessarily that we follow him, though at times of our Christian life that could play a part, but it's more about out of this devotion. We, we love the shepherd. We love the way he loves us. We love the way he feeds us. We're, we're attracted to his beauty. We're overwhelmed with his power. We're mesmerized by his majesty. We're enthralled with his excellence. We're spellbound by his supremacy. We're drawn to his deity. We're gripped by his greatness. We're overwhelmed by his omniscience. There's something about reading about the goodness and the greatness of God that just draws us to him. We want to be close to him and we follow him. Not so much, again, out of that duty type mindset, though that's part of a true Christian, but I'm just trying to say the heart behind that should be delight. I love him. He leads me, and I follow. This is, this is the perseverance of the saints. This is the idea that all those who are saved by grace will persevere in grace. Yes, there will be periods of wandering. There will be stumbling along the way. There will even be grievous, hurtful, and shameful accounts of sin. But at the end of the day, Christ's sheep will ultimately follow him. Now you may ask, well, what if one of his sheep completely walks away from the Lord? I would say the answer to that is then they were never truly one of his sheep. I mean, John talks about this in his epistle. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So we understand a true sheep struggles, but they continue to follow, right? Will, will you struggle with sin as a Christian? Yes. Will you stumble and fall as a Christian? Yes. Will there be short periods of time when you're operating in the flesh? Yes. But overall, the trajectory of your life will be characterized by one who follows the voice of Jesus. By grace, you will persevere to the end. And thank God that it's not about how tight your grip is on him, but how tight his grip is upon you. And that's exactly why we read in this next verse the promise of, look at your next blank, eternal security. Now, perseverance of the saints and eternal security work hand in hand, but let me give you three promises here in verse 28 of eternal security. Number one, sheep are given eternal life. Sheep are given eternal life. Just real simple again, first part of 28, I give them eternal life. You cannot earn eternal life. It is a gift of God. Jesus gives eternal life. You didn't earn this physical life, neither will you be able to earn spiritual life. Just as your physical life was a gift to you, 
so is your spiritual life God's gift to you as well. And Jesus says here, I give them eternal life. This is not something that is conferred by the church or received at baptism or taken at the Lord's table. Only Jesus can give eternal life by his sovereign grace. And these words of Jesus, I give, are in the present tense. In this passage, he does not say, I will give them eternal life, but he says, I give them eternal life. And this present tense emphasizes that if you are in Christ, then you have received this eternal life right here, right now. You're, you're living the abundant life today. If you're in Christ, it's not about heaven, though that's certainly our place of homecoming, right? But it's also about that eternal life changing you and giving you joy and strength and perspective today. It's, it's a present tense. He gives us eternal life. You're already walking in the spiritual riches and eternal blessings of everlasting life. At this moment, you are truly and eternally alive. And the life that you are living will not stop at death, but will continue for all eternity. Now, please note here in verse 28 that Jesus does not say, I give you five-year life. Or I give you 10-year life. You know, it's not a warranty that just lasts for a few years. He says, I give you eternal life. Most of you know I worked in heart surgery for a while before I became a pastor, and we did a lot of heart uh, bypass surgery, and our team never did a transplant. But the surgeon I worked with did do transplant surgery. In fact, he was trained by Denton Cooley at Texas Heart and helped out with some of those early transplants. And with all the advancements in medicine of people getting transplanted organs and transplanted hearts, do you know today what the length of time is for somebody who gets a heart transplant? It's still only 10 years. Now, in some ways, that's a blessing. Well, praise God, this person almost died. They get 10 more years of life but it's only a 10-year life. That is not what the Lord Jesus does. The great physician, Jesus Christ, doesn't do human heart transplants. He rather gives spiritual heart transplants, which are eternal. I mean, he gives eternal life in such a way as that you will never die. He, he gives everlasting life. He gives it to you. And he never takes it back. He never reneges on his promise. He never goes back on his word. Again, once in grace, always in grace. I like how A.W. Pink says here, quote, eternal life is neither earned as a wage, merited as a prize, nor won as a, uh, as a crown. It is a free gift, sovereignly bestowed. And that's what we're talking about this morning is that Jesus gives this eternal life. I, I wonder if you've received this gift I wonder if you're a recipient, not a five-year life, 10-year life, church membership life, but a recipient of eternal life. And so the first promise of eternal security is that you are given this eternal life. The second promise, number two, is that sheep will never perish. They will never perish. To perish means to die, but it means more than that. I mean, he could have said they'd never die, but he used the word perish. And this word perish means to cause or to experience destruction. To perish means to ruin or to destroy. The same word is used in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's used in contrast. You could perish where you suffer in eternity in hell, 
or you could have eternal life, or you have an eternity with Jesus. Uh, the Greek word again for perish in John 17, 12 is translated as the verb to lose or lost. Again, John 17, 12, Jesus says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction, that the scripture may be filled. The same word perish is translated as the verb to lose or lost. Again, in John 18, 9, this was to, was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I lost no one. The same word is translated to destroy earlier in John 10, 10. The thief comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. It's the word perish. One other common passage using this same word perish is Matthew 10, 28, where it is translated to destroy. Jesus says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy, cause to perish, both soul and body in hell. So what are we to learn from all of this? Well, we are learning that to perish means to die, but not in the sense that you die and that's it. You see, some people would teach the incorrect doctrine of annihilationism, where people either die and go to heaven if they have faith, but if they don't have faith, they die and they're obliterated. They're incinerated. They are annihilated and they go out into existence because those people don't believe in a literal hell. But this word perish carries the connotation of being ruined forever. It carries the idea of eternal punishment. It carries the idea of utter and continual destruction. It carries the idea of being put in hell for all eternity. And that may be true of the son of perdition or any unbeliever, but he's trying to say here with great emphasis, this is not true for those who are one of Christ's sheep. Once in grace, always in grace. And so the doctrine of eternal security is teaching the same truth as the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, though perseverance of the saints stresses that all those who are truly born again persevere as Christians until the day they die, while eternal security emphasizes that all true believers will be kept by God's power for all of this life and eternity, and they will never perish they will never face eternal damnation of the unbeliever in hell forever because they're given the opposite of that, which is eternal life, living forever and ever and ever in the presence of God because you're protected by the power of Christ. Eternal security, you see number one, number two, number three, sheep will not be snatched away. That's the third thing we learn about eternal security is that no one can take you out, right? And no one will snatch them out of my hand. To be snatched means to make off with someone else's property by attacking or seizing. It, it means to steal, to carry off, or to drag away. It means to take away suddenly. And Jesus says, no one will ever do this to one of his sheep. Now, this same word to snatch is used earlier in John 10 to refer to the wolf snatching sheep. In verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them, and he scatters them. Now, while it is true that no one can snatch you out of Christ's hand, it is also true that the devil will try and pluck you away. The devil will distract you. 
He will throw fiery darts at you. He will face you in spiritual warfare. But he will not, I repeat, he will not be able to snatch you out of Christ's hand. Jesus does not say in this verse that you as his sheep will not lose anything in this world. You may lose property. You may lose liberty. You may lose your life for Christ's sake. But your soul cannot be lost. And all of Christ's sheep are kept safely in his hand. Now, J.C. Ryle writes here, quote, Let it be noted that to be safe in Christ's hand and so never to perish is one thing. But to feel that we are safe is quite another. Many true believers are safe who do not realize and feel it. Now, I appreciate that comment by J.C. Ryle because it's true. Many people might feel like or they, they might know that the scriptures say that they can't be losing their salvation, but they don't feel like it. And the problem with that is, is that that person is placing feelings over faith, right? And we've got to understand that it's faith and then feelings, right? It's about faith in God's word and in his promise, not about how you feel on a certain day when you had a really rather bad day. Or maybe you've had a rather bad week where several times that week you've fallen into sin again and again and again. While in one sense I would say that ought not happen, I'm also saying as a realist that does happen. So what are we to think of this? Can we fall away? I've already told you, you can't fall away. But I'm also saying, as the scriptures teach, that if you're his, day in and day out, there's a fight going on. And if you're his, you need to put your head in the scripture and your heart in the scripture and ask God to change you from the inside out and to help give you an affirmation of who you are and your identity as a child of God. And if you're struggling with assurance of salvation, that's what this whole text is about. It's reminding you that if you're one of his sheep, you're his. No one's going to snatch you away. Yes, you might fall. Yes, you may struggle, but you need to come to this text and so many others like it, like we read earlier, Romans 8, 35 through 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And it's written, uh, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What I'm trying to say here is it's mind over matter. It's faith over feelings. It's God's word over your word. And your confidence cannot be in yourself. And it cannot be in your behavior. And it cannot be in how good of a week you have. Your confidence has to be in the word of God. Your confidence has to be in the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the almighty God who snatches you in his hand and he will not let go. And sometimes... A person who's struggling with assurance will say, well, I know no one can snatch me, but what if I myself separate myself from the love of Christ? What if I choose to leave? Well, listen to me this morning. If that's you, you didn't save yourself, and you can't lose yourself. And classical Arminianism teaches that you can lose your salvation, 
And this is, the, this is the only logical conclusion because a classical Arminian would say that if you can save yourself by your own free will, then you can also lose your salvation. Well, my friends, that way of thinking clearly goes against the Bible. Jesus said, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. And that includes you. No one is all-inclusive of every person who's ever lived, including yourself. He also says nothing in all of creation in Romans 8 will be able to separate you from the love of God. That includes you. You're a created being. You can't separate yourself because, again, Romans 8 says that nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of Christ. You didn't ultimately save yourself, and you cannot ultimately lose yourself. Again, R.C. Sproul gives a very simple illustration of this biblical concept he writes about in his commentary. Let's say that there is a strong father walking with his three-year-old son right beside a dangerous railroad track. And there are two ways the father can protect the son. He can say to his little boy, now listen, I want you to hold my hand tight because if you let go, you could fall on the railroad track and be killed. Or the father can say, son, Give me your hand. And he takes the boy's hand and he holds on to him with a fatherly grip. Dad, you know what kind of grip I'm talking about, right? It's that kind of grip like, hey, we're going to the bedroom right now. Come here. You know, or you're out in a dangerous place, right? And you're next to the street. You don't put it, your li- the kid's life in their own hands, right? You're walking down that busy street. You as a dad are going to grab your child's hand and you're going to hold tightly and you're never going to let go. Which one of those is the surer method? The child's hold of the father or the father's hold of the child? Jesus said no one can snatch his sheep out of his hand. We are secure, not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus already said in John 6.39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. If you'll move with me now to verse 29, here with this divine prerogative. There's a divine prerogative here, verse 29, when Jesus just says, look, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The Father has given his sheep to his Son. The Father is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus is restating what he's already said in a stronger way to make doubly sure that his audience is hearing what he's saying. It's as if Jesus is trying to communicate that his hand is underneath the sheep and his father's hand is above the sheep and between them are his sheep clasped in the hands of of omnipotence. We are twicely secure. This is like wearing a belt and suspenders, right? This is tying down your cargo and then tying it down again. This is double bagging your groceries. This is printing your ticket out and having it available on your phone, right? You're gonna make doubly sure that this happens and this is what the Lord's saying. Look, you're in my hand, but you're also in the Father's hand and together with the Son and the Father, there's no stronger passage in all of the word of God that can be found guaranteeing absolute security for every 
child of God. And I love how, again, A.W. Pink just rattles off right here in his commentary seven strands of a rope that binds every true believer to God. Just listen to what he writes here. He says this, first, they are Christ's sheep. And it is the duty of the shepherd to care for each of his flock. To suggest that any of Christ's sheep may be lost is to blaspheme the shepherd himself. Second, it is said they follow Christ and no exceptions are made. The Lord is not saying here they ought to, but he declares they do. If then the sheep follow Christ, they must reach heaven, for that is where the shepherd is going. Third, to the sheep it is imparted eternal life. To speak of eternal life ending is a contradiction in terms. Fourth, this eternal life is given to them. They did nothing to merit it. Consequently, they can do nothing to demerit it. Fifth, the Lord himself declares that his sheep shall never perish. Consequently, the man who declares that it is possible for a child of God to go to hell makes God a liar. Sixth, from the shepherd's hand, none is able to pluck them. Hence, the devil is unable to encompass the destruction of a single one of them. Seventh, above them is the father's hand. Hence, it is impossible for them to jump out of the hand of Christ even if they tried to. And then he ends with this. It has been well said that if one soul who trusted Christ would be missing in heaven, there would be one vacant seat there, one crown unused, one harp unstrung, then this would grieve all of heaven and proclaim a disappointed God. But such a thing is utterly impossible. It's impossible. Dear Christian, no one will ever take you away from Christ. No one will be able to remove you from the hand of the Father, for he is greater than all powers. He is greater than all foes. He is greater than all forces. He is greater than all doubts, all fears, and all failures, and his grip on you is not a death grip. It's a life grip, and it holds on to you for all eternity. That's the prerogative of the Father. And then last we see the divine proclamation in verse 30 where Jesus simply says, I and the Father are one. If it hasn't been clear yet to the Jews, the answer to their question, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly, here is the answer without horns. I and the Father are one. This is Jesus saying, I and the Father are one in essence, one in substance, and one in nature. Jesus is not saying that he and the Father are of one person. There is one God, but there are three persons in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so what we see here is that Jesus is the great shepherd, and God the Father is the great owner. The shepherd and the owner are one. One in their relation and attitude toward the flock. One in both power and in love for the sheep. They are one in their care and their protection of the sheep. And whatsoever the Son has, the Father also has. The Father is one with the Son, and the Son is one with the Father. These two are one in perfection, and they are one in glory. 
And so here it is that you have heard Christ answer. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is one with the Father. And so let me ask you this morning, will you enter into the flock of God through Jesus Christ, the door? Will you respond today to the effectual call that Christ is placing on your heart for you to come to him? Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, but wide is the gate. The good shepherd is calling, and you must follow his voice. Flee from the voice of strangers. Watch out for the thieves and the robbers. Don't allow the wolf to devour your soul. And so I call you this day to come to Christ. I call you today to heed his voice. I call you today to turn from your sin and to turn to the Lord Jesus, who is the chief shepherd. He has laid down his life for you, and he has taken it up again. He has authority over heaven and earth. He knows you by name. He and he alone is the giver of eternal life. And if you come to him as one of his sheep, you will never perish and no one will ever snatch you out of his hand. Martin Luther said, quote, the sheep, though the most simple creature, is superior to all animals in this that as soon as he hears the shepherd's voice, he will follow no other. Also, he is clever enough to hang entirely on his shepherd and to seek help from him alone. He cannot help himself, nor find pasture for himself, nor heal himself, nor guard against wolves, but depends wholly and solely on the help of another. So I'll ask you one last time, are you one of his sheep. So we head out, three encouraging things to think about. Number one, Jesus has a loving relationship with his sheep because he died for them. He has a loving relationship. He, he loves you, and he's expressed that by his sacrifice on the cross. Second, Jesus has a living relationship with his sheep because he cares for them. Christ died for you. That demonstrates his love for you, and he cares for you on a daily basis. Jesus lives. He gives you eternal life. Hopefully, you're living together with him. And then last, Jesus has lasting relationship with his sheep because he gives them eternal life. Jesus has a loving relationship, a living relationship, and a lasting relationship with his sheep. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look again at this important passage of John 10. What an unbelievable uh, teaching that the Lord Jesus is doing throughout this chapter, reminding us that he is the door, that he is the good shepherd, and that we are his sheep. May we be encouraged today that his sheep hear his voice and that no one will ever snatch us out of his hand. Thank you for the power of both the Son and the Father. And of course, we understand we're sealed by the Holy Spirit that would keep us true to the faith and that would allow us to glory in this doctrine that Jesus and the Father are one, that the Holy Spirit is part of the economic trinity. Thank you, God, for just reminding us of these truths today, that this would cause us to walk with a little bit more confidence, not in ourselves, but in Christ's grip on 
us. And so be magnified in our hearts, in our lives today. Help us to learn and apply these truths in a way that would change us and others for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.